Hello and welcome to the latest weekly Investment Trust podcast from Moneymakers. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and with me today, as always, is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Simon, last week was a bit of a down week for the markets, but uh, this week has been a whole lot better. We've seen a bit of a comeback, have we not? That's absolutely right, yes. I mean, the investment company sector uh, is up uh, 2.5% or so, so far this week, and that's kind of broadly in line with the the FTSE All Share. And we've seen the sector average discount tighten in a little bit. So as you know, it's been kind of hovering around the 6% level for some time. Uh, It actually kind of narrowed into about 5% at one stage and probably about 5, 5 5.5% at the moment. So that's quite encouraging, particularly as a week where we saw a big dividend cut from BP, which had an impact on the UK market, uh, and sort of mixed news from around the world about the uh, possibility of the virus uh, spiking back up in various countries, leading to some quarantine impositions for holidaymakers. I hope that won't affect you uh, when you go on holiday next week, Simon. Let's kick off by starting, as we so often do, in the flexible sector, which is a spin-off from the global sector, the AIC rankings. And let's start with RIT, which is a a multi-asset fund. They've been reporting this week. What have they had to say? So RIT Capital Partners had their interim results out to the end of June, so the six months, basically the first half of this year. Uh, The NAV total return was down about 2% or so, which uh, was a little bit better than the 3% decline for the MSCI or Countries World Index. Probably of more disappointment, certainly to shareholders, is the fact the share price total return was down nearly 15% in the period. And that reflected the investment trust moving from a 5 plus premium at the start of the year to an 8% discount by the end of June. So that obviously hurt the share price total return. But uh, the underlying portfolio has done its job. And this is a uh, relatively cautiously positioned uh, portfolio and uh, has a number of private investments uh, as well as absolute credit and they all held up quite well. Quoted equity funds though did detract uh, from performance as did more kind of economically sensitive uh, stocks but uh, the investment team there remain cautious and uh, the uh, average quoted equity exposure throughout that period is about 42 percent so that's on the low side for, by historic standards for that investment trust. So can you uh, attempt to attribute why there's been this uh, sharp movement in the discount? Is this still something to do with the lingering impact of the announcement that uh, Jacob Rothschild, Lord Rothschild, is standing down from day-to-day involvement, uh, which I think he made last year? Is that still a factor, do you think, hanging over the share price? I think there was more of an element that, uh, as we know, as we've discussed before, that uh, the investment trust sector got derated across the board back in uh, March and Rick Capital Partners was not immune. And it probably just started at a higher level. It was it started the year at a premium uh, and then it's partially recovered. I mean, today it's probably on about a 5% discount. So just probably slightly tighter than the sector average discount. But um, I think the point I'd make here is that for investment trusts, we talk a lot about uh, the importance of looking after discounts and making sure they don't go too wide. I personally believe that uh, investment trusts and their boards have to look after their premium ratings as well and don't let them get too stretched because when you do hit these periods of market volatility and that premium rating goes to a discount, then that can be a pretty painful journey for uh, investors. Yes, well, that'll be one to watch. I mean, historically, for the last few years at least, as you say, RIT Capital Partners done a very good job of capturing a lot of the upside and uh, not so much of the downside. That's their big kind of selling point. We'll have to see whether there's any kind of permanent impairment to that record. If not, that discount might be attractive to some people. Let's move on to a a much smaller vehicle, which uh, does something slightly different, but uh, 
is in the same AIC sector. That's BMO Managed Portfolio. What can you tell us about that? So this uh, investment trust is an interesting one. It's launched 12 years ago. It's run by a gentleman called Peter Hewitt, who I think we can describe safely as a, a veteran fund manager. But it is a fund of investment trusts and has two share classes, a growth share class and an income share class. The income, uh, obviously, as the name would suggest, has a yield difference very important to it. It's yielding over 5% at the moment. But actually, it had its results out this week for the year to the end of May. And both share classes outperformed. So the growth leg was up uh, 1.5%. The income leg was down 7% or so, but that compared with a fall of 11% for the FTSE All Share Index. And they've also managed to increase their uh, dividends. So unlike other investment trusts of investment trusts, such as the one that Nick Greenwood at Mighton is responsible for, who tries to take advantage of uh, discount opportunities, uh, Peter's approach is very much to look at the highest quality uh, investment companies with those who benefit from proven and experienced management. So if you look at his portfolio, the names that have worked well for him in this period are those uh, invariably with a technology or healthcare bias, uh, and a few of his defensive names have, have paid off as well. So for those people looking for ideas of investment trusts uh, that they might want to pursue, then, and to look at Peter's portfolio is probably not a bad starting point. Does he use gearing uh, at all to help improve the returns, or is he just relying mainly on his expertise uh, in finding the best uh, investment trusts out there? The investment trust does use uh, gearing. Off the top of my head, I'm going to say that the income portfolio is geared at the moment and the growth portfolio is not. Uh, but that's not to say that that could differ at any stage. But yes, gearing is, is part of the story, but I wouldn't say it's absolutely central to the story. Very good. Well, that's one which, as you say, retail investors might be interested in having a look at because uh, he's trying to do what many of us are trying to do, which is to find the best uh, investment trusts that meet our particular requirements. Let's move on though and just briefly mention something called uh, Henderson Alternative Strategies. I think they're going to be winding up, is that right? That's correct. So shareholders approved a managed wind down back in July. We're still waiting for a few more details on that, but they've said it's unlikely to last no longer than two years. But they had their annual results up to the end of March and um, obviously that was a difficult period. Their NAV total return was down 14% against probably 6% for their benchmark index. And their share price total return was down 21%. So a tough period for it. But since the news has come through that there will be a managed wind down, the discount has narrowed in a bit and probably about 10% or so at the moment. And that trust, I think, was about 100 to 120 million, something of that order, 110, 120 million in assets. Is that right? That's correct. About just over 120 million uh, in assets. So let's uh, move overseas next and let's look at some specialist funds that have reported... Uh, just now. Let's start with a couple of the Fidelity Trusts. There's uh, Fidelity European and uh, Fidelity Japan. What's the, been the story there? How are the fortunes uh, contrasted? Both of those investment trusts published their interim results to the end of June this week. Both outperformed their respective indices. So Fidelity European Values, which is managed by Tim Morse, their NAV total return was up 3% compared with a 2% decline for their benchmark, the FTSE World Europe. Um, so a relative positive set of results there. Uh, and they also declared a 2.6p dividend. Fidelity Japan Trust, they had their interim results out again to the 30th of June. Their NAV was up 2%. And again, their, their index, their reference index was down 1%. So again, uh, relative outperformance. And that has a uh, small and mid-cap bias to uh, companies in the Japanese market. Well, it's been a long week, Simon, and I think you may have inadvertently called Sam Morse Tim Morse, but uh, 
In any event, these are both quite significant trusts. I mean, Fidelity are quite, their specialist country funds have done very well. How are they trading in the market? So Fidelity Euro Values is trading on about a 7% discount or so now, probably just a little bit tighter than its average over the previous uh, 12 months, which will be about 8%. Uh, the Fidelity Japanese fund, that's on about a 10% discount, again, probably slightly wider than its 12-month average of 9%. Okay, so that's kind of a solid performance there, I suppose we could say. Let's move on to talk about one which I know has quite a large uh, private investor following, which is... Uh, Terry Smith's Fundsmith Emerging Equities Trust, FEET as it's known, though he's not directly involved in the management of it. Compared to his other mainstream uh, fund, that's obviously something of a disappointment, but how has that uh, been performing and what does it actually aim to do? So they had uh, interim results out again to the 30th of June and not a bad set of results. Their NEV was up 4% compared with the uh, decline for their benchmark of 3%. Their share price wasn't quite as impressive as that, the share price just in positive territory and the, and the discount has widened out there. And they've changed their sector emphasis a little bit. So as you know, uh, many of the, the funds associated with Terry Smith have had uh, quite a strong emphasis on consumer staples as a sector. And in fact, in, in this particular case, they've moved away from that slightly in this period and they're investing more in healthcare and technology names. And that's helped their um, outperformance of the benchmark. But you're absolutely right. Terry Smith stepped down officially in, in May last year as one of the fund managers, though clearly still involved in the wider investment team. And it was at that stage that we saw this investment trust derated. And what's been happening overall in the emerging markets sector? I mean, who is it competing against and, and how has it done in relative terms, would you say? It's obviously raised a lot of money when it was launched. I don't know how big it is now, but it's certainly quite large anyway. How has it done compared to some of the competitors? It's got a market cap of just under 290 million, uh, which is a decent size, but some way behind some of the larger funds in the sector, such as uh, Templeton Emerging Markets, which is uh, closer to two billion pound market cap, and the, the JP Morgan Emerging Markets Fund as well, 1.3 billion. So they're the two largest funds, and arguably the most mainstream funds uh, and best known in the subsector. But if you look at the five year NAV, numbers for feet they're up about 32% in NAV total return terms over that five-year period and that compares with 97% of the Templeton Emerging Markets and 94% for the JP Morgan Fund so you can see that they are some way behind over that uh, longer time period. Yes the formula that works so well in the mainstream uh, global market doesn't seem to work so well in emerging markets for uh, a number of reasons. Let's move on and let's talk about something back in the UK again. Let's pick up a couple of names first of all. Well, let's start with uh, JP Morgan or Claverhouse Equity Income Trust. What's been going on there? They're quite a well, uh, well-known well trust and they've been uh, going for some time. So um, JP Morgan Claverhouse had their interim results out this week uh, and that was for the six-month period to the end of June and a tough period, it's fair to say, their NAV total return was down 22% in that six month period and that compares with 17.5% for the FTSE all share. So they underperformed in that six month period. In share price terms, they were down 25% as well. So a tougher period and you know certainly the managers there make it quite clear that they were, with the benefit of hindsight, positioned uh, incorrectly. Certainly at the start of the year, they had a relatively positive outlook uh, for the marketplace and to be fair I suspect most people did at that stage uh, and then clearly uh, we entered the tough markets of uh, February and March and that's when the underperformance occurred but the better news for shareholders is that they've increased their interim dividend uh, it's gone to six and a half p and the intention from the board's point of view is they want to increase the dividend overall for the 2020 financial year 
uh, and they've made it clear that they're you know they're likely to use revenue reserves uh, in order to achieve that. I mean, it's interesting, as we all know, that there's been huge dividend cuts across the UK market, and this is a, a relatively mainstream UK portfolio. But uh, the dividend income received in that six-month period was 33% lower than the comparable period in 2019. So that's quite a, a long way down. The other thing to mention about this one is that the investment team, so William Meaden and Callum Abbott, have been prepared to use their gearing. Different managers use gearing in different ways. Some will just deploy the gearing and, and keep an eye on it, but effectively let it run. Well, others will try to take advantage of market conditions, and, and that's certainly the case in, with Claverhouse. So they were geared at the start of the year, they de-geared as the market fell in March, and actually re-geared as they saw the opportunity in terms of some interesting investments. And at the end of June, the, the fund had uh, gearing equivalent to 13% of net assets. So quite a dynamic use of gearing. Yes, it's an interesting point that. I mean, it's obviously one of the advantages that investment trusts have and claim to have in their marketing, but... It's surprising how difficult it is to find, you know, consistent evidence of how gearing has actually added to returns over time. I guess it does require quite a lot of uh, research to actually try and strip out the effect of the gearing over time. Would the answer simply be that basically, if you're using gearing as a matter of timing, then it's uh, just as difficult as any kind of market timing to get the gearing right? Would that be a fair comment, do you think? I mean, that would certainly be the view of many people, but then equally, others are quite happy, quite prepared to take a view. If they see opportunities in their area of the marketplace, if they see really attractive valuations, they will want to spend more money. Um, And and bear in mind, obviously, with investment trusts, these are not like open-ended funds where you have to manage flows in and out, uh, which is often takes up quite a lot of time for most fund managers, certainly those responsible for open-ended funds. In the case of investment trusts, you, you have your fixed pot of capital and so gearing is a chance for them to express a view. If they think that the investment opportunities are, are too good to be true, then then gearing is a good way to kind of express that view. Yes, I mean, I was just thinking because in the in the equity income sector, UK equity income sector in particular, it's obviously, be, as we know, a very significant sector and a very competitive one where we're a number of uh, management changes taking place. And I just wondered whether it's seen as a one way to give yourself a slight competitive advantage or disadvantage, depending on how good you are at it. So one of, one of the things that's undoubtedly true in the equity income space is that many investment trusts now have actually borrowed at very attractive uh, long-term rates or even using uh, short-term credit facilities, which are invariably quite cheap these days. Uh, and so there is effectively a carry trade by which, I mean, the cost of the, the debt, the credit is lower than the yield of the investments in which they're picking up using this geared element. So basically, in a nutshell, it helps their revenue account. It increases their ability to pay dividends. And that's why in that space, I suspect the majority of fund managers will be quite happy to deploy gearing and just leave it uh, permanently and, and enjoy the benefit of that carry trade. So what the Claverhouse team have done during this period is a little bit more unusual in this space. Okay, well, let's move on again. And let's talk about another very uh, interesting Investment Trust, which has some uh, news this week, and that is uh, Hypnosis, whose uh, ticker is Song. And as we know, they are the first uh, investment trust to come to market looking to make money out of buying the back catalogues or entitlement to royalties of popular singers. And uh, they've had some quite sort of headline grabbing news this week, I think. That's right. So as we may remember, um, they raised additional capital uh, not that many weeks ago. And so now it's a case of uh, deploying that capital. And the news this week is that they've bought a catalogue of songs by Barry Manilow uh, and another catalogue by the people behind 
Blondie, so uh, two names to conjure with there from yesteryear, shows your age if you know both of them, I guess. But it is quite important to note sometimes, uh, you'll see that hypnosis have been very active now over the last few years in terms of picking up songs, and certainly if you look down the list, possibly a bit like myself, you won't have heard of a great deal of them because of the fact that they are more recent vintages. But the advantage that they have when they buy the more mature catalogues, so of artists back in the 60s, 70s and 80s, as is this case, that they can see the earnings history behind these songs. So one would imagine that they never disclose the price they pay for these catalogues, that they will be able to more accurately come up with their uh, earnings estimates on a forward-looking basis. That's an important point, of course, isn't it? I mean, they never do disclose the price, and so that's, I guess, uh, slightly unusual in a sense. But when they publish their annual report, are you able to see the... Uh, well, you can see the valuations, and you should presumably at some point be able to see their book cost, or is that not something that they will be doing, do you think? So, I mean, they do give, obviously, greater disclosure, as all investment trusts do around their annual results. But the question as to are they paying the right price for these, these catalogues um, has been raised. In fact, there was a piece in the Tempest column in the Times this week picking up on that very point and questioning the model and suggesting maybe it was a little bit too early in the, in the company's life cycle to take a definitive view of it. But clearly, it is a competitive marketplace. Uh, they have cash to deploy. Uh, and I suspect the answer is time will tell whether they are paying the right valuations for these these catalogues. I mean, I guess you could also look at it from another point of view, which is that why would the singers uh, or their descendants, if you like, sell out for basically a capital sum instead of a recurring income? Presumably they have a way of thinking about what the thing might be worth. But equally, they may be, certainly in the case of Barry Manilow, I would think um, they might be contemplating their mortality, I guess it would be fair to say. I'm not even sure if he's still alive or dead, I have to be honest. <laughs> uh, well, let's hope he is. Let's hope he let's is. Let's hope he is, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Look, I mean, clearly being offering a, a lump of cash in exchange for your life's work must be quite attractive, particularly at a particular stage in your life. And, you know, I remember back to, I think it was probably the 90s when the late David Bowie had the, his Bowie bonds and there was quite a lot of media excitement uh, around that. Basically, the idea being that he was securitizing his work his music royalties even back in that stage. So this is not a particularly new idea. And, uh, you know, ultimately, what's a catalogue of songs worth? I mean, in the point, in case of hypnosis, is that this is a very diversified, it's increasingly diversified uh, portfolio now. They are uh, making regular acquisitions and clearly raising additional capital is helping them in that pursuit. So, you know, should one of these artists fall from grace, one suspects the actual underlying exposure would not be too great. Though, that like all these things, there's probably a skew at the top end. And I think they have provided some disclosure around this in terms of uh, the, the numbers, number of songs actually do some of the heavy lifting in terms of the, the revenue that's generated. Uh, ultimately, though, it's always going to be a name that's going to capture uh, interest. And, and certainly the media have, have picked up on this story this week. Well, I must apologize if Barry Manilow is out there and no doubt he'll be listening to this podcast if he is, as he wants to know what the market thinks about the sale of his uh, catalogue. Uh, we wish him well even if we don't necessarily uh, want to listen to what he's singing. Let's uh, try and move on again. What's been going on in uh, private equity? Pantheon International has, has reported, I think. What have they been saying? So Pantheon International had their annual results out uh, to the end of May, which is a slightly unusual period. It should be fair to say, it's worth saying actually that most of the valuations are as at the end of uh, March. They're obviously adjusted for foreign exchange movements. But over that 12-month period, their NEV was up 4%, uh, though their share price total return was actually down 7%. So within the portfolio, 
Um, the majority of it uh, delivered pretty decent results. The, the tilt to the information technology in the healthcare sector certainly proved positive. What didn't work quite so well for them was the exposure they had to energy assets, so probably about 5% or so of the portfolio in energy assets, uh, and that clearly, given the lower oil price and lower energy prices in general, uh, proved to be a detractor. But they saw net cash inflow of over 100 million, 110 million to be precise, in, in the year. So that would put their balance sheet in a reasonable place. Like most of the fund of private equity funds, they make commitments and get drawn down on those on a period of time. Uh, but against uh, undrawn commitments of over 540 million at the end of May, they have net cash on their balance sheet of 120 million and an undrawn credit facility of 300 million. So they kind of increased that as the period went on. So I think what was quite interesting was some of their comments regarding the, the general private equity environment. I mean, certainly they've got a cautious stance to uh, new investments. And, and, and they said that investment activity had, for understandable reasons, been lower, particularly since that March period. Although they, they did point out that opportunities are now beginning to be identified. Uh, and that's quite important for a fund such as Pantheon. It can take advantage of uh, what's called secondaries. So these are uh, existing investments in, in private equity funds, but the original owner may wish to, to sell and prepare to take a discount on the value. And uh, Pantheon are very active in the secondary market. Um, so they think that as we go through the year, uh, there could be some uh, increase in, in deals there. And they think that's a bit of an opportunity for them. Well, we've mentioned before the fact that the discounts in the private equity space, at least on the surface, are quite wide. Have they been coming in at all? And uh, do we still think that this is a combination of concerns about what the net asset values really are? Or is it more just a reflection of the difficult times that some of these uh, private equity funds may be facing because of the virus? So you're absolutely correct. We did see the um, private equity sector derated quite heavily during that March-April time. If you look at the fund of private equity funds, I mean, many of them were, were touching 60% discounts at that stage, albeit to their NAVs at the end of uh, December, the end of 2019. Now, obviously, we're, we're moving on. We've had the NAVs for the end of the first quarter. Uh, as we move over the next uh, month or two, move over the summer, we'll get the NAVs as at the 30th of June. And that'll be very interesting to see where those come out. But discounts, you're absolutely right, they're still wide. In the fund of private equity funds, they're probably averaging around 25%. And that's, um, well, Pantheon finds itself not dissimilar level, 24% discount. So, so I think there is some expectation from the, the marketplace that the NAVs will be a bit lower at the end of June. And certainly the average over the past 12 months or so has been around about the 20% mark. So they're certainly trading at a wider discount. But I think what can be said about private equity is that it is going to be a more difficult year for the industry in general. Private equity kind of lives on deals. It lives on realizations and making new investments. And as discussed, investment activity is going to be lower this year. That's not to say that certain deals won't happen, but you won't see the kind of big amounts of realizations and IPOs and big uplifts. Um, that, that wouldn't be the expectation at the moment. Right. So an interesting exercise you might come back to and look at at some point uh, in the future, but not now, is whether or not the private equity funds, you know, in what periods do they actually outperform general equity uh, investment trusts and in what periods do they not? It's an interesting subject that obviously the part, again, of the, the marketing spiel of private equity is they do have the capacity to deliver high returns over time. But obviously it depends, as you say, on market conditions remaining favorable to what they're doing. Uh, which obviously they have not been in the last six months or so. 
One other trust we might pick up on in this context, it's not a private equity fund, but we could have put it in earlier, but that's uh, JP Morgan Global Income and Growth. What can you tell me about uh, that particular trust? We have talked about that before, but uh, perhaps we could uh, do with an update. That's right. So JP Morgan Global Growth and Income is a effectively a best ideas global equity. So it's all publicly listed uh, companies and effectively the team there, um, the triumvirate of investment managers are trying to select the best ideas generated by JP Morgan's extensive bank of, uh, of analysts. It's got a, a decent long-term performance record. It sits in the global equity uh, income uh, peer group. And that's a function of the fact that it actually pays back to shareholders 4% of its NAV every year through the form of a quarterly dividend. So it's what we call an enhanced dividend. So it's not necessarily, and it won't actually be covered by the revenue generated by the portfolio, but the directors, the board of this particular investment trust have made the decision to offer shareholders uh, that dividend as part of the return. So JP Morgan's line on this is, this is the, you can have your cake and eat it investment trust. I think it's their uh, marketing line. And the idea being that you can have exposure to uh, more growth orientated uh, companies and yet at the same time enjoy the yield as well. Though actually when the update this week with uh, one of the managers, Tim Woodhouse, he made the point that um, they've enjoyed a good run as one would expect on some of the technology names, um, but they have been taking some profits from names such as Amazon and Microsoft in this period and looking to take advantage of some more contrarian valuations. So Taylor Wimpy uh, was one of the examples of a company that they've been backing recently. Well, that could be an interesting straw in the wind. If they're right about that, and of course we don't know if they are right or not, but if they're right about that, that might have some implications for the performance of the wider market. That's an interesting one to look at. Let's move on again. Let's talk about an investment trust called, with a ticker, ATT. Perhaps you can explain us about that one. So this is Allianz Technology, run by another veteran investment manager, Walter Price. They had their interim results out this week, and, and unsurprisingly, technology, as mentioned, uh, has had a very strong run. So over this six-month period, their NAV was up 37% compared with 22% for the benchmark. So not really did they enjoy the boost from technology in general, but they actually outperformed it and then some. The reason for that outperformance is worth noting because the companies that they've looked to back have benefited from what they call the kind of new habits and working practices adopted during lockdown. So cybersecurity, workforce collaboration and communication services are all the kind of buzzwords used on that basis. But it's, a, it's an investment trust that has seen um, a huge amount of growth over recent years. It's got a market cap not too far off a, off a billion pounds now. Um, so see, it's still some way behind Polar Capital Technology, which is um, 2.8 billion pound market cap in that particular sector but it has seen uh, rapid growth and obviously very strong performance numbers now over a period of time. Yes, I think it's slightly edged ahead of Polar Capital Technology in terms of its performance over slightly longer periods, but it's not a huge margin. We talked about that. It's a very small sector, surprisingly, perhaps, in the investment trust world of technology, pure technology anyway. Allianz, Polar Capital and Herald are the three trusts there. And as you would expect, I imagine they're probably trading quite well at the moment, are they? How are their discounts uh, behaving at the moment? Well, Allianz Technology is actually trading on a premium of 1%, uh, and that's, broadly speaking, its average over the previous 12 months. Polycap Technology, that's widened out a little bit, so probably trading nearer to a 5% discount now, having averaged 2.5% over the last 12 months. Uh, and Herald, Herald's a slightly different vehicle. I think we've talked about that one before. It's got a very heavy uh, UK weighting, which the other two don't have, and a, a lot more emphasis on small and mid-cap companies. That's trading on a 13% discount, that compares to an average of 15% over the previous 12 months. 
Okay, though well, that's an exciting area. Let's have another look at a much smaller trust which does something interesting and different for everybody else. And at first sight takes a lot of risk in the way it puts its portfolio together. That is a small investment trust called Aurora, which has had quite a lot of publicity there in the last couple of years. It's uh, managed by a gentleman called Gary Channon. What do they do and uh, what's distinctive about them and how have they been performing? So Aurora invests in uh, UK equity, so publicly listed companies run by Phoenix Asset Management, so Gary Channon. But they take very much a contrarian value approach to their investments. So very, very concentrated portfolio, probably about 16 or so holdings at the moment. And they have big, big stakes or big holdings in EasyJet, Ryanair, probably 16% in those two companies of their portfolio at the end of July. Uh, they've also got significant weighting to UK house builders, 22% in uh, names, Barrett Developments, Bellway and Red Row. Uh, and they've also got a big holding in Fraser Group, which is 11%, which has obviously uh, been in the news quite a lot over any number of years. So they take big holdings and they, they talk about intrinsic value. So they look at these businesses. They are fundamentally driven investors. They do a huge amount of research themselves. They ignore sell-side analysts and their earnings predictions and expectations and, and literally go out and visit these companies, kick the tires and build their portfolio accordingly. Uh, so over the long term, it's produced very strong numbers. It's fair to say that this year has been a really tough year for them. Their NAV is down about 30% or so. So that's obviously an underperformance compared with the wider UK marketplace. But uh, the aforementioned Gary Chan talks about value investing being a horror story with a happy ending. And Clearly, one suspects shareholders in the fund would, would agree with that. But we have seen the discount widened out a little bit. So after trading around uh, NAV, on average over the last 12 months, the discount's probably touching 7-8% at the moment. So it has been derated just in, in the last month or so. But their premise is that these companies that they are investing in have substantial prospects going forward. Uh, and they really are quite excited about the value that they believe exists in their portfolio. Yes, and they've been doing this particular approach for quite a long time now, and uh, it has been successful over the longer term. But it's one where you need to have quite a, you have to have a, a stomach for quite a lot of turbulence along the way by the very nature of the portfolio. It's uh, highly concentrated. And some of the stocks are, are a bit Marmite, I would say. You either love them or hate them. And not everybody is a fan of Mike Ashley, who's now in charge of Fraser's. But, you know, it takes all sorts in investing, and one cannot afford to be... Uh, dismissive of a formula that actually seems to work over the longer term. So that was an interesting one. Now let's go back to some rather perhaps duller investment trusts, which are nevertheless very important to a particular breed of shareholder, and that is the property sector, where as so often in recent weeks, we've had a whole string of uh, updates from a number of different property companies. Perhaps you could mention one or two and uh, you know, point out how they are getting on relative to uh, where we thought they were going to be and also tell us the story about their uh, potential yields and how they've been affected. You're absolutely right. The, the dividend or the yield that these listed property funds has, has been a key part of the story. And we see movements in different directions this week. So BMO Commercial Property uh, was one of the first commercial property funds to come out and, and suspend its dividend back uh, earlier this year when there was a huge amount of uncertainty. This week, they've announced that they're going to reintroduce their monthly dividend, albeit at 50% of the previous level. And so the board are going to keep this under review, but effectively, the rent collection uh, that they've seen has been at higher levels than previously expected. Uh, and so that's led to the, the reintroduction of their dividend, albeit at a lower level than uh, where it was previously. Standard Life Investments Property Income, they produced their NAV uh, as at the end of June, and it was down in the period 
but possibly more interesting was the, the fact that they've looked to reduce their dividend. Um, I think this has been relatively well signposted. They were one of the few UK commercial property funds to kind of hold out in this space. Uh, and they're, they're looking to reduce that rate uh, down by 60%. But the idea being they want to still keep on paying their dividend. And that gives them a, a prospective yield of 5% even at the lower level. Interestingly, they're talking about rent collection for the third quarter uh, of this year. And as at the 22nd of July, so a few weeks ago now, they were at 60% and they were expecting that to increase to nearer 70%. But they're clearly big areas of the marketplace that are struggling to, to meet their rents. But we've seen some of the more specialist funds fare better in terms of rent collection. So I think a couple of names that we talked about before, Tritax, Big Box REIT, uh, they had interim results out for the six months to the end of June. And their NAV was up 2%, total return, it was up 4%. And their dividend, uh, although, although down, they, they continue to pay that uh, dividend of over 3p uh, a quarter. And in fact, Tritax Eurobox, sister fund that obviously focused on the European market, they, they announced that actually 100% of the rent due by the 31st of July was received by that date, albeit a more limited rent roll, but more positive news there. Oh, so how has that been affecting the performance of the trusts in these various sectors? I mean, how have they been performing? Have their other shares uh, moving back up, the discounts coming in, or is it much the same? It's still on wide discounts, basically. So if you take the BMO Commercial Property Fund, that's on a discount of 50% or so at the moment, though we now do have the NAV as at the end of June. So actually, sorry, that discount will be a little bit tighter now because the updated NAV has come through. But still on very wide discounts. Some of the other larger ones as well. So UK Commercial Property, uh, they're on a 19% discount and they're probably the tightest of the bunch in that UK Commercial Property space. On average, it's probably around about a 26% discount. So Still some pretty wide discounts on commercial property. I still think, although there is a probably a better than expected picture in terms of valuations and rent collections, still obviously a lot of uncertainty. This is a very economically sensitive area. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned earlier, with a huge amount of uncertainty out there in general, um, I think people are still quite wary uh, of this area. It's also an area where we've had some striking news from the listed uh, equity market, the troubles at Hammerson, and also following on from the troubles at Into Properties, which have been well documented, and they can't be good for sentiment at the moment. I think even though obviously what they're doing is somewhat different in many respects to what these trusts are doing. We'll keep an eye on the property sector. Let's move on to another sector which has been uh, seen capital raised not so long ago, and that is the renewables infrastructure sector, renewable energy, renewable infrastructure who have you heard from in this sector and what have they been saying? They've obviously presumably been doing a rather lot better than the commercial property funds we just talked about. So we've seen um, NAV updates for the end of June from two of the new uh, entries or uh, into the uh, renewable infrastructure area. So Aquila, European Renewables Income, uh, they were only launched in June last year. And the story there is that they are now 84% of their capital has been deployed and committed. Their NAV was down just very slightly in that Q2 period. So still relatively early days for that one as they look to get fully invested, but they are paying a dividend. Uh, Octopus Renewables Infrastructure, that was launched actually in December last year. Uh, and again, that's still relatively early days, but 75% of their IPO proceeds have now been invested or committed, and they are looking to pay a dividend. Admittedly, that will rise with time, but uh, they're making progress on that front. Probably the big development in the sector was the interim results that came through from the Renewables Infrastructure Group, so known as TRIG. 
This is a, a vehicle that's been going for some time. It's got a market cap of 2.4 billion, so a substantial constituent of the, of the sector. Their NAV uh, was down 2% in, in the period. And again, a uh, similar story to what we've seen for some of the other funds, some of its peers, and that's that the lower price forecasts have been negative for valuations, but at the same time, uh, they've seen a reduction in their discount rate and uh, a few improvements in terms of uh, initiatives and maintenance costs, which means that the impact on the NAV is not too bad. Possibly of more interest is the fact that they've got cash dividend cover of 1.25 times, uh, and they're actually targeting uh, a dividend 6.76p for the year uh, to the end of this year. So that's a, a positive story and clearly a big part of uh, the whole renewable energy infrastructure sector. And how are the yields overall in the sector looking at the moment now? What uh, I mean, in terms of what you can get by investing them, even if they are trading at premiums, which of course most of them are, I think. On average, 5% is a rule of thumb. It seems to be about right. Though obviously some will be a little bit more and some will be a little bit less. Again, those funds that have got a longer track records and been able to grow their dividends uh, and deploy their money, they're probably on a slightly lower than five. And equally, those that are a little bit newer to the marketplace, assuming that they are paying full dividends, because invariably they come to the market and take two or three years to deploy their capital and then start paying their targeted dividend. But they, they will be on the, the higher side. But uh, as a rule of thumb, probably about 5%. And so, in a sense, one of the things that drives the premiums is to kind of try and reduce the yield to a fairly standardised level. Would that be a fair thing to say? In other words, the price adjusts to bring the yield down to a, uh, a level that reflects uh, the competition as well as their own uh, individual merits. Yeah, I think yield is a key aspect in determining where these things trade. I think that's absolutely right. I don't think there's any coincidence that they, uh, you know, they're in a relatively tight band. Certainly, the more mainstream funds in the space are around between four and a half and five percent. Okay, well, I think we might draw a line there. Apart from just mentioning one other investment trust, we said a few weeks ago it's been some time since we've seen uh, mergers in the investment trust sector. There have been a couple, as we know, and there's another one which is going on now in a trust which is mainly owned by institutional shareholders, but we might as well mention it while we're here. And that is a trust called Pollen Street Secured Lending, where there's been a bit of a barney going on there, I think it's fair to say. And there's another kind of development in that saga this week. You don't need to perhaps give us all the details since it's mainly a rather complicated institutional stock. But uh, tell us what we need to know about that one, Sam. So you're absolutely right. Pond Street Secured Lending, it's been you know, what we call in play uh, for a few months now. Um, it was seen a possible cash offer from a buyer from Waterfall. The board has been reviewing options. And then this week, we learned that Honeycomb Investment Trust, so its sister fund, has uh, proposed a possible merger uh, with Pond Street. So we'll, we'll see exactly how this one plays out, though I think it's fair to say that Pond Street secured lending, something will happen to it. It's not entirely clear yet what that will be. But again, there is overlap in terms of the, the shareholders uh, that they have in common between Honeycomb and, and Pond Street secured lending. So there's obviously a conversation to be had there. And these trusts are basically filling some of the gaps that the banks used to do before the global financial crisis. They're basically lending money, essentially, but not in the same way that a bank would do. But they're filling some of the space that the banks have vacated. Am I, am I right about that? That's correct. And, and yield has been a key part of the story, or, or that's been the idea behind it. But yes, the, this idea that in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, the banking sector found itself a little bit adrift, and these vehicles would come in and take advantage of that. And uh, I think it's fair to say that the experience has, has been mixed, broadly speaking. <laughs> Mix is a polite way of putting it, probably, yep. So, the, the, again, the notional yields that you're getting on some of the trusts in these things look quite high, and they possibly fall into the uh, 
sort of too good to be true category. Would that would that be a fair comment? Do you think? Yeah, I just I'd be quite wary of looking at historic yields and assuming that that they'll be the the yields that you'll receive going forward. Indeed, even if you've got the tools to analyse what exactly what they're doing, which has always been a difficulty with the banks as well. So Honeycomb, well, that's a nice name. I'm going to finish by saying that uh, in the short time we've been recording this podcast, I've managed to do my research on uh, Barry Manilow. And uh, not only is he still alive, he's 77 years old, uh, but they've just released a new uh, a new version of one of his uh, best-known songs, I believe, which is called When the Good Times Come Again. It seems to be selling very well. It seems to be uh, something that uh, people are looking out for, some kind of good cheer. So let's hope that is... Uh, an omen for the investment trust sector as well. That's all we've got time for this week, Simon. Uh, next week, we are going to do something slightly different for the podcast. Uh, we're going to do a kind of general primer about what investment trusts are. So this is very much aimed at people who are newcomers to the sector. We're going to try and explain some of the key features of investment trusts. And hopefully that will become something which people might uh, find of interest, particularly if they're not fully apprised of all the fascinating details of the way that investment trusts are structured and operate. After that, Simon, I know you're going on holiday for a couple of weeks, so uh, we may or may not be recording, but we will keep people posted. And in the meantime, I hope that the good times do come again for you and for everyone. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.